Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Filmmakers Academy podcast. Take advantage of monthly virtual group mentorships, networking events, and new content released weekly by becoming a member today. Join today and get $20 off your first month by using the promo code FAPOD20. That is F-A-P-O-D-20. And join the number one resource for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Filmmakers Academy Inner Circle Podcast. I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC and AMPAS member cinematographer. And I'm Lydia Hurlbut, and I'm a holistic coach and Reiki master. And we have a very special guest in studio for you today, Nicole Hirsch Whitaker, ASC, who is an incredibly accomplished cinematographer with TV and feature films and a long history of commercial work. We discussed so much today with Nicole. We talked about what is it like for women in the film industry and how it was for Nicole, her career trajectory. We also discussed her really exciting project, One Piece, and how she took anime and made it with the director's vision, obviously, as well, into this amazing uh, show. And we talked about how she started as a producer before she became a cinematographer, what it's like to be married to another ASC cinematographer, and a lot of other things on leadership in between. So you don't want to miss this episode. So welcome, Nicole. We're so excited to have you yes. in studio. Nicole's in the house. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me. We have so much that we want to talk to you about, but I know everybody wants to know about One Piece. And so I think we're going to start there with a deep dive and then move on to a lot of other exciting questions. So in terms of this project, and obviously this is Shane's territory more than mine, but I just know that you read the anime with your son and that, that you really knew so much about it, um, that allowed you to kind of have a leg up on, on how do you take all of the anime and, and transition that into the project? I mean, it just seems like a huge undertaking. Yeah. The whole idea of, you know, taking the animation and making it real life, like what was, your initial thoughts when you were like, okay, this is what we're going to do. I was terrified. I can imagine. <laughs> it was daunting, you know, especially with the fan base that it has and, you know, yes. 25 years and, you know, it was, uh, and it's not been very successful in the past right. for people who have tried to translate Correct. anime and manga into, into shows. So, um, it was, it was definitely scary, but I knew because Mark Yopes, the director who I'd worked with before was an amazing storyteller that he was going to make the storytelling key. And it wasn't all going to be about just trying to do something fantastical. And so I knew when I read the scripts, um, which were really, really wonderful as well, that there was something that we could 
that we could play off of that was going to be exciting. So that was that was the easy part. And then from there, we probably spent about a year um, developing the look and coming up with what we were going to do and then did a lot of prep as well, obviously, on the on the ground in Africa before. So we really spent a lot of time trying to figure it out and going back and forth and trying to develop what it was going to look like. Yeah, I loved the mix of fantastical and real. And that's mm -hmm. what really sucked me into the project because you were thinking it's it's got this kind of like the ships were ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> you know, and but in a really cool, unique way. And yeah. and the uh, the way you handled all that and the the style. And I know because, you know, in these animations, you know, the camera can just move all around just effortlessly. And now we're moving mass uh, and that's hard. So talk to me about that process, mm -hmm. because I know. You went down the whole road of reinventing lens, you know, basically making lenses. I want to ask, how the hell did you get Netflix to pay for that? <laughs> and uh, the other thing I just want to, because that would be my, the one thing that I be, would be really uh, trying to adapt the animation is like, how can I make the camera feel effortless, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was obviously a huge conversation and we watched a lot of films um, films like Slumdog Millionaire, um, where there was this, you know, whimsical kind of, you know, storytelling through camera, but you were also telling a story that wasn't necessarily a very happy story because at the at the root of One Piece, it's it's sad. You know, yeah. these kids are all orphans and um, or they've had horrible childhoods and and then they've come together to find mm -hmm. a family. So we wanted to to make sure that that was first and foremost, and that it wasn't all about camera and things that would take you out of the story. So we we were very cognizant to make sure that when we did use cranes or we did do things that were really sort of out there camera-wise, that it was for very specific moments. And then the rest of the time, it was really about, Mark, as Mark says, a person and a camera so that you didn't have that disconnect of when you have a tool that you feel like the tool has taken over the camera movement, that you wanted it to feel connected to the person who was actually operating. So I would say 80% of the time it was handheld. And that really gave us, or uh, on, a, on a line with a Ronin, which right. is how we did all of our stunt work. Um, and then very, you know, very rarely did we have a techno crane or mm -hmm. something that was brought in. I mean, we had cable cams. We had all different kinds of things for, for the ships that we had to, you know, because of the nature yeah. of shooting on a ship. But it was really, really, it was liberating to just be able to grab a camera and go. Yes. So that was, that was sort of how that language came, came to be. And I think it really, I think it really worked really well. And I think it helps to get people to engage with the characters in, in this respect. So. Yeah, and I noticed that you know, one of the things I remember when I did Into the Blue on the water, you know, my whole main mission was give me a flotilla. Right. Just one boat yeah. that I can be on and lens from and all that stuff. And I want to be able to rotate that thing everywhere. Now, you had some of that scenario, but a lot that you couldn't rotate, correct? Right. Yeah. So we definitely, we had the frogmen, we had the flotillas. And when we were in, there were three different tanks. Um, so there was a the top tank, which was 
really open so you could have the smaller boats and you could rotate them as the sun was moving and we could just we just had you know most most of the time we had like a small techno or scorpio on right. one of the rafts and then we would move that around so you could you know pickle in and get things on the boats um or you know the cameraman would just jump in the boat right um but they were small so that was tricky the big boats were all dry dock yeah um except for baratier which was <clears throat> built in a another tank that was uh there was another huge tank that they built that boat in, um, but everything else was dry docked. And then Windmill Village, which was the village um, where he grows up when you see him um, wake up, those boats were also all in the water there. And then that whole village was built in the water. So it was kind of a, a mishmash of, of being able to control things. And then there were days where, you know, it was too windy and we couldn't fly things we couldn't even fly blue screens some days mm -hmm. um so it was it was tricky but you know my we had an amazing ad and mark's a very patient director and he knew that we needed to be clocking ourselves as yeah. the day went on but like sometimes the boats were not in the right direction <laughs> so it was hard it was definitely hard and we tried some we tried some overheads and things and you know we were on such wide lenses that um we got a call and they were like, you can't do that because every shot's going to be a VFX shot. So we just basically ended up kind of just rescheduling things so we could use the sun. And, and it worked out great. Yeah, I noticed that you used a lot of wide angle lenses in this. And uh, tell me about that whole conversation with Hawk mm -hmm. and how were you able to uh, make that all happen? Uh, what were your relationships with them in the past? And then let's get into how you convinced Netflix to buy five sets of lenses. <laughs> so, um, so when Mark and I first started talking about the show, um, and you know, initially we were like widescreen anamorphic, done, because you know, anime feels just you feel like it's anamorphic in an interesting way. But as we all know, you don't have the close focus, right. and mm -hmm. you can't go close and far. So we knew we couldn't do anamorphic. So we started talking about spherical. I looked at some certain spherical lenses and, you know, things were just not really hitting home that it was the right, the right lens to use. And so Mark and I started talking about um, the mini Hawks, which we had shot on Jupiter's Legacy for some of the, um, when they go to this island, it's this kind of fantastical sequence. And he loved, he loved them. And I said, well, imagine those lenses in a large format how it would take them to another level. Mm. And he was like, oh, that'd be incredible. And this was probably, you know, about nine months before we started shooting and we started talking about it and we immediately got on the phone with Netflix and started the conversation after I had spoken to Hawk about it. Obviously, I called I called Peter Martin and Wolfgang and we had done uh, projects together, but I'd only ever um, done anamorphic projects with them and then used the mini Hawks um, on certain projects like as a second lens or yes. second set of lenses so um I knew that the large format anamorphics obviously wouldn't work so I asked if they would create a set of large format mini hawks and they were like hmm okay we're gonna go see if we can figure that out <laughs> and they called back a couple weeks later and they said yes but Netflix of course had to approve it because they couldn't just build them and nobody would use them so uh, we went to Netflix and had a long conversation about it and probably probably a couple dozen phone calls um, with the executives. And basically, they approved it. 
they said, okay, go ahead. And we didn't even get, we were, we didn't get the lenses until two weeks before we started shooting. Wow. So wow. there was a lot of trust. I trust Hawk. Yeah. Like I would never. Yeah. And, and also, you know, being Germans, they say things are going to arrive and they're always early. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, unlike other companies where they're like, oh yeah, you're going to get it on Monday and then you get it on Wednesday. Uh, yeah. Like they exactly. say yeah. you're going to get it on Monday and all of a sudden it shows up the Wednesday before. So, so we did get them a little bit early. Um, so we got two sets I think we got two sets in the, in the beginning to start with, and then the other sets trickled in as we were shooting. So I have a production question, and that is from a producer's lens, could it be the conversation with Netflix, like, okay, if we're investing here, this is how you could save over in this line item of the budget? Or was it just a conversation of, we absolutely need these to make this project successful pretty much and okay <laughs> yeah the latter it was it was really this is this is what we want to do right this and is the look this is the... going to make this something different that yeah. and people unique. are going to talk about and unique okay um and we did we did use as well we had a, a master built 14.5 mil and then we had a, a lawa a couple lawa 12 mils and then we had an 8 mil as well a fisheye that we used. So the fourteen point five is such a unique lens. It's for an Master amazing Bill lens because yeah. it fe it has no distortion and it's truly not a fourteen point five. Right, it's wider than that. Oh yeah, yeah. so much wider. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's really it's it was a great. I it, loved it, him over there. <laughs> it evened a... out the package, and it was it was funny because I told Peter and Wolfgang, I'm like, I need some wider ones. They're like, mm. so they did finally build a 24, but they haven't gone any wider than that. So, um, but yeah, no, it was it was a great, and and it was wonderful that Tim let us take. I think we had three of those um, that he let us keep, you know, because we nice. had them for a year. So yeah, that was a long time, but yeah, it was fantastic. Wow. Okay. Yeah, he's still working on his inventory. Every time I go to ask for him, he's like, oh, I got one set. <laughs> like, I need three. Yeah. I can't. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so back to um, the project, I'm sure there were times when, and I've, I see cinematographers do this because not being a cinematographer, I think I have a unique lens. So there are times when you have such a daunting project and especially the amount of prep that you had for this particular um, film, I'm sure that it's overwhelming or meant from the mental stress standpoint, how do you deal with just what's coming at you in terms of your, your capacity and in prep and in shooting? I think that it's, it's the mental stress piece that really gets people because that's the part of stress that is the most impactful that we don't think about where you, your body feels tired or you at the end of a long day, you're like, wow, I just need to sleep. But you, that's more obvious. Right. Right. So how do you deal with overwhelm and mental stress and just seeing the whole project all at once and thinking, oh my gosh, how are we going to do this? Right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I love what I do so much that I'm so excited when I'm on projects that I actually, it's kind of, it de-stresses me in an interesting way. And oh, okay. I also think, you know, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, like when we started out, it was a lot more stressful because you don't know as much and you also have a lot more on your plate. You don't have all these people helping you. So when you get on these big projects and, you know, you go to a meeting and you're sitting in a room and there's 60 HODs, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a question, you're just like, oh, hey, stunt, you know, stunt department. Oh, hey, you know, our department, you know, you can just look to someone and everybody's on 
you know, on um, at the stages. So you can go around to people's offices and you have so much support. And when you have that much prep, you also go into the shoot knowing what you're doing as yes. opposed to exactly. not having prep, which is more stressful. So I find the bigger the shows, ironically, the less stressful they are. Um, and obviously, as we all start to know what we're doing at more and more and, and, you know, every job we do, there's always something I have no idea how to do and yeah. I have to figure it out again. <laughs> so there's always that. But I love that to me is really fun. I that love is. the R&D. It's the challenge. It's the yeah. challenge. Yeah. If yeah. you yeah. could just if you go to work and you just shoot something that you know how to do, it's not as fun. Yeah, so. It's like I always say uh, you have to stay uncomfortable at yeah. all times Yeah, yeah. because that's what continues to push you. And, uh, you know, it's like I remember when I on Into the Blue, I was like, I'm not I don't like to dive. It's not anything that was ever in my wheelhouse because I had really bad ears mm -hmm. as a kid. And they, I have a very narrow uh, canal. So me, it takes like 50 minutes to acclimate. Uh, to acclimate. So I thought, how am I going to do this movie? You know, I got mm -hmm. 99 days underwater. I got 60 topside. And I just started, I thought, okay, if the water is going to be so um, clear in uh, the Bahamas that I can physically see where the camera is and see where my lights are, this is unbelievable. This is a bird's <laughs> eye view into a lighting schematic. Yeah. I'll just light it from the top side. Oh, that's great. So I just looked on and I would, you know, talk to my team and they would move it all around. And Zuccarini, the uh, cameraman, he, comes up and goes, so how the hell are you doing this? <laughs> this is, I've never looked like a lit underwater like this before. And I go, dude, it's like a bird's eye schematic. I can see where the camera is. I know where I'm putting the light. And it's just like, that's how I had to do it. I had to do it from literally the top side, yeah. just looking down. Interesting. You know? Yeah. So I love the, the creativity and the, also to circle back around, you sound like you're amazing at delegating and really trusting your team, especially with such a huge project. And I think that that is something that people that's learned leadership is really the delegation piece because I think when you're first becoming a leader, you feel like you have to control everything. But I think over time and as you hone leadership skills, you really get good at delegating because you realize otherwise you'll sink. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so how, how do you lead Nicole? What is that like for you? Um, on both big projects and smaller, I think it's so fascinating to talk about just, you know, it's different for women and men and just the feminine energy and kind of how your leadership style looks. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think of my crew as my family. So no matter what, and you know, we all work in different places all the time. So every time you go to a new country, I haven't worked in the same city or country in the last five years, every project's been somewhere new. So I have to arrive somewhere. You know, obviously we interview them before you get there. You try to find people personality wise that are like you and that are also on the same wavelength creatively. And then I just, I treat them, you know, not like children, but like my brothers and sisters. Yes. And, um, I always make a really good point of that. And I find if you keep people on the same level as you, that you're not, you know, it's, it's tricky in some places, like, especially in Africa, they, they, was it in Africa? Yeah, I think they call you boss, boss man, boss woman. 
Yes, I think it was an hour. Boss woman, yeah. <laughs> boss woman. Um, and uh, I hated that. I'm like, I'm not your boss. We're working together. And like, no, 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 you're my boss. And I was like, mm. okay, fine. I, you know, I get it. It's a cultural thing. But, but in most countries, it's just about making sure that they feel comfortable telling you how they feel or if they have something personal going on even, mm-hmm. you know, that they might need a day off, you know, because when you're on a long project, people get so tired. Um, and I've just always been like, oh, my door is open. Come tell me if you're having issues or if you're not, you know, feel like you're not getting support from production or whatever you need. And I feel like a lot of times crews, and there are some DPs that want their crews just to deal with that. And that's fine. And that's, they find people that are good doing that. Mm-hmm. But I like to be involved in here if people are having issues all yes. the time. So um, I don't know if that's from being a mother, <laughs> <laughs> possibly. Um, but, you know, I have plenty of, um, DP friends that are men that do the same thing. So I think it's just a personality. Um, I think it is you because you do the same thing. You're very involved. You, I, from my lens, and again, I'm not <laughs> in your job doing it, but I think that when impactful things are going on, it, it has to impact this work family that you're in, right? Like if, if a parent is having a medical crisis or something's going on with your child yeah. or your own health is being impacted just from something that you're dealing you're with tired. Yeah. or you're exhausted or you're burned out or whatever yeah. it is, all of this impacts the, the set and work environment because it's also, you know, you can tell if people are just dragging Right. And and it's your job as the leader to bolster and boost everybody up and kind of try to inspire so that you can get your team to deliver their best. And that's hard to do, I think, with things like COVID or with things when, you know, crews are taken out or people might be dealing with long term effects from long COVID or all of these new things that have kind of entered our sphere in the past three, four years now, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I've, it's one of the things that I've talked to a lot with, you know, younger filmmakers um, is learning how to pace yourself. You know, it's one of the things I notice the younger crew people are the ones mm-hmm. who tap out. Yes. The people who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s are great because they go home, they go to sleep, they spend the weekends <laughs> resting and the, the younger ones go out and they party and yep. they're exhausted on Monday. And so I also have that conversation sometimes with, you know, some of the, the crew that are in their twenties. And I'm just like, you know, I want to make sure you're taking care of yourself. And, you know, if you're going to be on this for 140 days or 160 (laughs) days or however long you are on a TV show, because I'm never on that long. Cause I, you know, you do your couple episodes and you leave, but they stay on for ever and ever. And it's, you know, it's a grind. I mean, the good thing is in Europe and in Africa and most of the countries, not in the United States, we only do 10, 10 and a half hour days. Oh. And that's really helpful. And, and that's what we did on One Piece. We rarely went even 11. Um, that is so it's civilized. So civilized. So you actually, people can absolute, go home and have dinner with their I families know. and see their kids and put them to sleep. And Exactly. You know, and, and we I also thought that was life. the best thing about COVID. Remember? <laughs> you had because everyone days. did 10 yeah. hour days. Yeah. That was, they said we had to get at least 14 hours that we could, whether we're sleeping, whether we're right. eating, you know, and that was so great. I mean, I was actually... I was able to go to movies. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. After you never, work. After work, <laughs> yeah. I never had done that before. Yeah. No, it's and so different. And then I w- ended up working with another director where she doesn't break. 
So that was, and we didn't do French hours. Hmm. We just meal penalty through every one of them. So we did 10 hour days, started, ended, and, you know, that was the whole run of the show, 98 days of never eat, you know, never breaking. And it was awesome. Yeah. I love that too. I love doing that. It's hard to get people to do it because it is expensive for production, but it, it is. is. Um, but people, I mean, we there's certain times you have to, like if you're shooting in, you know, Canada and you've only got six hours of dark, you know, it's like mm-hmm. you have to shoot that way, you know, or, you know, yeah. different, different situations or vice versa. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it is really, I just, I think it's just such a good piece of advice um, in terms of the most difficult thing about our job is not the creative part, but the politics and wellness, mm-hmm. keeping yourself healthy and yep. not burning out. Because yes. that is, it's a really hard job. And like you said, it is stressful. And even if, you know, I mean, I always say it's some, it's it's like you'd never go back to it if you remembered all the stress. <laughs> so <laughs> no, I think exactly. we kind of forget about it, you know, because it's obviously there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of, you know, things yeah. that happen. Like even uh, one of my directors, she was just here. She got nominated for an Emmy um, for Bad Sisters uh-huh. and, and her and her partner, uh, we had dinner together. And I said to her, I said, she doesn't remember anything about like how stressful that job was. And her partner was like, oh, no, she doesn't. She doesn't remember a thing. And I was like, it's kind of amazing how you just let that just disappear because then you're like going into your next project. Oh, I call it short-term memory loss. It it is, right? (laughs) Right? And I I practice it fully. You have to. You have to. You have to Mm -hmm. disconnect. You have to, you know, and it's like moving from one project to the next is so hard because you're... I did one uh, last year where I was going from, or I guess what it was, a two, 22 and 21. I was going from New Jersey to Atlanta, right? And I just got off of uh, one movie that was completely unique and, and uh, an amazing experience and then get thrusted down in Atlanta. And I was like, I didn't even have one day off. I flew on my <laughs> day that I wrapped, you know, and then uh, was immediately ready to start in prep. And that I had not done in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, back in the music video days and everything, sure. I would go three, four days <laughs> straight without sleep, all yeah. that kind of stuff. But when you're, you know, getting up into your uh, high 50s, <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not as easy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, I know. Like when I was, um, when I was shooting in Hungary, I was timing one piece here in the States. So I would start at seven o'clock at night and go until three in the morning and then have to get up and go to work. And that was those, those days for me were really rough. I mean, I did it during prep. Um, I didn't do it when we were shooting, but still it was, it was hard. And, you know, I'd say to them like, please just don't schedule anything for me until like 11, you know, if you can. Um, But, but still just that, you know, that sort of schedule, it's just, it definitely, it's hard, but you know, if you pace yourself, you can still do it. (laughs) What is your, so on that theme, what is, what are your, what tricks do you use or what is your self-care that you do when you're on the grind that you try to squeak in just little tricks maybe for people or tips that you have that work to sustain energy, to remain mentally balanced (laughs) and not slip into such fight or flight all the time. Because the biggest thing that I see is 
set is sympathetic nervous system firing on all cylinders, which give all the byproducts to the body. And, you know, it's like, let's go. There's never enough time. There's never enough, you know, you're always feeling up against it. Right. And so how do you deal with that? What advice can you give to people? Because I think it's so important to hear what different people do and people that are not burned out, angry and resentful from just staying in that fight or flight. I think, I think it's sort of going back to what I said in the beginning, which is that I just love it. I, it's a, it's adrenaline for me to be on set. I'm so excited. Like I, some people love prep. Some people love post. I love shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, I love prep too, but I just, I love going to work. So yeah. I wake up and I'm just excited to go to work. It never feels stressful. It never feels like a burden. Even if it's a day where I know it's a hard day, mm-hmm. I also get really um, excited having to figure out how to solve those problems. So that's part of just what keeps me going. And I, I know, you know, that I will never want to stop shooting until I die. Yeah, <laughs> because it's just so much fun. And, you know, it's, 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 it's like we said, it's hard, but it's also just, it's such a pleasure and it's such a privilege to be able to do what we do. It's really fun. And it's also, you know, you're not the director, so you don't have all that pressure. You don't have to be on the job as long as everybody else. You kind of mm-hmm. get to come in and, and do the fun part. I yeah. think at least that's, yeah. you know, people always say, why don't you want to be a director? I'm like, oh my gosh, like, no. I don't want to have to deal with all that other stuff. I don't want to be on a movie for a year and a half. Well, and, and on top of that, and then, you know, it's it's just all the minutia that you have yeah. to deal with. You know, I, yes. I like being focused on the visuals. Yeah. Um, I love working with directors, and all the directors I work with are so collaborative, which is something that I've been super fortunate over the last few years. So they involve me in casting. They involve me in art department conversations and wardrobe conversations. And we come up with, you know, a, a cohesive language between yes. all the departments, which I love. And especially I hadn't done a feature in a long time and I just did a feature and starting and everyone starting together on the same day. I mean, you know, usually amazing? I come on to television, they've already built half the sets, you know, no, I, I, I know. have nothing to and say. Yeah. I, I love huge. that. Uh, and I did a lot of, I think I did four movies during COVID where it all, we started together. Yeah. That was the first time I'd ever had that on any feature because usually production designers in their two months oh, prior. Yeah, 100%. And all you're doing is catch up with them. And you, by the time you actually hit production, you finally have caught up with production design, you know? So all starting together, mm. all feeling each other's personalities and being able to really design it from the ground up that way is so, it's, it's kind of the way it should be done all the time. Absolutely. You know? And that's why it's so wonderful. People who get to work with the same directors over and over again is as they, you know, once they get a project, mm-hmm. they talk to you about it the minute that yeah. they're starting. Like the director I just worked with in Hungary has a project coming up and he's been talking about it with me before he even started writing it. And so mm-hmm. I've been involved and now it's, you know, now we're talking with the visual effects supervisor about how we're going to do it. Cause again, there's a lot of water work. And I was on the phone with pizza Carini two days ago <laughs> talking about it cause he has to build us a tank. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it was just that being able to be so early in the process yes. and chime in and be like, you know, what's going to be dry for wet, what's going to be wet for wet, what's going to be practical, what's going to be on a volume. It's just those kinds of questions. It's so important to me because if that's decided without you as, as the director of photography, then you don't get to design the look. And then right. it's 
not really your show yes in that respect so I love now that I'm at the point in my career where I do get asked to be involved so early on it, it's made a huge difference and it's yeah. really it's wonderful and it's that's why I'm more excited I think even now than I used to be <laughs> about yes. shooting because it's like I feel like I'm really part of this collaborative group of artists you know exactly and really you great. feel like the design element uh because that's the one thing in prep I really love doing is sitting there with the director, figuring out the style, the keyframes, everything within the scene and stuff. And then, you know, figuring out the dynamic of the characters and where their arcs are and what we want to highlight and what we want to spotlight on and, and all that stuff. And that process, I love getting it so dialed in where... I walk in the first day and they get the game plan and we just do that, yeah. you know, yeah. and it just takes that level of stress off of you. Absolutely. And it's, I always yeah. find that the last three weeks of prep are my least favorite and the first five or 10 or 15, whatever it is before then is my favorite time because that's when you can dream more. Yes. And, and then, then before you, your dreams get squashed. Exactly. Then all <laughs> of a sudden the, the dreams schedule. now have to go from the vacuum into yeah. a box. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. You get the new schedule and you're like, oh gosh. Oh God. <laughs> you that's crushed me. Totally crushed know? my dreams. Um, <laughs> so as a, I, I love this. You remember what it was like when you were starting out now you're at the greatest point right where you're literally a hundred percent in your joy but I'm sure um the the twists and turns of your career you remembered how hard it was in the beginning how much it was of a struggle at times how it's hard to keep perspective and maybe keep going so as an ASC you know, female cinematographer, <laughs> speak to that a little bit. Like where, where did you struggle? What inspiration do you have for other women coming in, you know, as they're finding their place? I know that you really have been, you know, you've had an incredible career in, in commercials, in television and features, and you've been doing it for a while now. And also your upbringing with uh, traveling, know, traveling the world, the world and your parents and all that art that they were uh, kind of, you know, brought you around for and, and took you along with and you're able to, I mean, that's one thing that I, I love. That's my decompress time is just to walk into a museum and mm -hmm. just look at art, you yeah, know, mm -hmm. and yeah. it's, uh, but yeah, let's talk about that whole process. Sure. I mean, you know, I had an unusual path because I started off as a photographer. I went to NYU, got into film and then went back to art school for painting and photography mm. and um, drawing in Italy. Then went back to film school because I was like, I better get my degree. And while I was in film school, I got this amazing internship. And I was working with a director who was a big music video director um, at Enley Lacey. Remember Enley Lacey? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take you back, right? <laughs> so, so, and that was Liz and Luke. Yeah. And um, so I basically helped him run this little company that he had. And there was another um, student who was also a, got an internship with him as well, who now I think he's still at Lakeshore. He was the CEO at Lakeshore for a long time. Um, but anyway, so the two of us would get we would get about ten thousand dollars for a karaoke video and we would go out. We had he had an S, and he would usually shoot, but sometimes he would have me shoot and literally just learned how to edit, how to produce, how to 
really shoot on my own, come up with these really cool little, they were like these great little art vignettes. They're not like the karaoke's you see now. Like yes. they were really beautiful little art pieces. And then he would, on the on the flip side, do these like huge, he did a lot of like heavy metal, like Gorky Park. And then he did like, you know, Georgia Satellites and all these other music videos. He would have like a quarter of a million dollars to a half a million dollars. And I would come on as his assistant. Um, and then one time he couldn't be there for a video and it was actually for the Georgia Satellites. And uh, I showed up for work and he was sick. And Liz and Luke said, you're in film school. You're going to shoot this. And Do I was your like, best. <laughs> uh, okay. I was like, I'd never been on a dolly. And it was like this whole circular dolly track was set up with fire and they were performing in the middle of it. And luckily I had Dave Devlin was my gaffer. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, Larry Fong was the camera operator <laughs> and Greg Araki and Jim Gucciard. I mean, like I had this incredible crew, like, and Romeo, I think Romeo was even there. I don't know. There was like all these amazing people who are all like cinematographers now. And, yes. Um, unfortunately Dave's not with us anymore, but he was fantastic. And they were so amazing and supportive. Like I thought everybody was just gonna be like, Really? You're going to let her do? Oh, my gosh. Whatever. And yeah. it was just like, I just sat there and they, they were like, here's the, where the knob is. And here's this. <laughs> and so that was my first time really shooting. And um, from there, basically, I somehow got stuck in production with, with them and with him because his jobs got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I speak a lot of languages, so they would always send me overseas when they did overseas jobs. And I always shot second unit, though on those jobs. So I ended up producing for about eight years and really mm. sort of stepped back from cinematography, except for those little bits. I still loved it, but I was having a really good time producing and I was making good money, you know, yes. in my twenties. <laughs> it was nice to be able to make money and buy a house and, you know, all these things yeah. that I wouldn't have been able to do if I was coming up the ranks to be a DP. Um, so basically long story short, I woke up one day, I, I was pregnant and I with my first child. And I said to my husband, who's also a cinematographer, I don't want to produce anymore. I really want to focus on shooting. Once I've had this kid and I go back to work, that's what I want to do. And he was like, okay, damn. Like now I have to really get my, you know, together. So yeah. I can be like the only breadwinner. Um, and we're having a baby. He's like, okay. This is Timing. Great. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, but this is what I want to do. This is always what I've wanted to do. And I just got sidetracked and it was great. And I learned so much that helped me as a cinematographer, because I understood production and I understood every department, um, even though I'd mostly just worked on commercials. So, um, so that's, that's basically how I started shooting and I put together a montage reel. I got an agent and I never looked back. So I never did the traditional, I was never an AC. I was never a camera operator. I did a little bit of things, um, you know, just peppered here and there, but I didn't ever commit to it. And then I just, I got into the union. Luckily I got, um, grandfathered in on a feature that Sharon Meyer hired me on called coach Carter. It was a paramount movie oh, yeah. and the business, if there were so few women in the union that were DPs. So, um, the union and the business affairs got together and basically got me approved to join the union and do that, to do that feature. So then that also got me a lot of second unit work and, and then I just, took off from there. So. so that sounds pretty easy and seamless. And I <laughs> like, wow, let's Feels break like it. it. <laughs> Do you think, um, so if everybody doesn't have that road, um, essentially, do you think that you were able to leverage a lot of your production 
connections as as a DP or how what do you think made that happen for you? Because I really want to drill down on this um, because I I I see people at the point where they could be very talented, but they just not given the break or in other words, how do what do you think the best way is for people that are either trying to transition and pivot from one role to another, or they're just breaking in and they just need somebody to give them the opportunity and the chance. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, no, it was actually the opposite. It was very hard for me to get all of the production companies to see me as a DP. Uh, when I made the okay. switch, they just could not see, like, how could she go from producing to a DP? And so many agents told me, like, no one's ever done it before. There have been a few people who've tried. It's never worked. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to make it work. Like, I just would not take no for an answer. And so it was hard. And, and in the beginning, but a lot of the directors that I had produced for, they just started hiring me, mm-hmm. which was great. And they were mostly women because um, I worked with a lot of female uh, directors and commercials. And... I never thought about that it was harder for me as a woman to get into the business because I was just so embraced. I was never Mm. not given an opportunity because of my gender um, in that capacity. So I never had, it's so interesting that that it seems like that was more of of the next generation that felt that and had to deal with that, where I was coming up with, you know, Carolyn Chen and, Mm -hmm. you know, there were, there were women that I could look to that were really successful and big DPs that we never talked about, you know, that you're here because of being a woman or a man, or it was just, you're there because you're good at your job. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's changed. And, And I don't exactly know when that happened, but I think it was, I think one day everybody woke up and said, there's no women <laughs> in this field. And that's, we've got to address this. Yes. Yeah. But when I was doing it, it was just, I, you know, I would show up on nine out of 10 times when I would show up on set out of town for a tech scout, my crew, who I'd actually been on the phone with, all thought I was the producer. Oh, wow. Until I was like, no, no, I'm the DP. They're like, oh, really? I've never worked with a woman before, you know, and, and then like all the people would start coming, this is so amazing. I've never worked with a woman before. It was never the opposite. It was always just this joy, like, this is so great. And like, even I remember I worked with this gaffer in South Carolina who had um, done all of like the Star Wars movie. And he was just like, I'm 70 years old and I have never worked with a female DP ever. And I was like, well, yeah, there's not that many (laughs) there's really not that many of us it is and it's still still to this day there's a lot of people when I show up on set that say I'm the first female DP they've ever worked with so wow so uh how do you deal with that like what is your do you do you just say okay right let's go and yeah (laughs) (laughs) I've just never I you know I grew up with such supportive parents that never told me I couldn't do anything so I just I Mm -hmm. think I just never thought that it was a hurdle that I never thought I couldn't do anything I wanted because of being a woman or being a girl. So it just never even, it never came to my mind. And, and it is such a huge topic of conversation now. And, you know, and I think it's wonderful because like you and I talked about, mm-hmm. we, we weren't honest or transparent, you know, when we were pregnant or when we had to do things that had to do with our families. Like if you have to leave early or, oh, I can't be on this phone call or I can't make mm-hmm. that meeting because you know my child is sick or it's just not you know I, I don't have a caretaker yes. like I never ever ever said anything 
I kept it to myself and I dealt with it myself. And that was just how, how it was for me. Um, and I think that the new generation, they're really strong. And I'm, I'm so impressed with women who are just like, you know, this, no, I, that's not going to work for me. Yes. Um, this is my schedule and this is what I can do. So, and I, yes. And I think that it was almost as if we, because I so relate to what you're saying, but from a different field, um, we, it's, you're not allowed to cause any issues or almost take up space in the room. Like you were hiding everything, breastfeeding and all of these different things that women had to deal with when you had children, because it would be seen as a liability and that could then impact your future job hiring. Absolutely. And, and I think that it's very difficult in today's world to understand that, you know, like for, for the, the younger generation. And we, uh, I love that they can be so open and honest about it because I feel like we felt as though we couldn't because it was not about making ripples. You know, you just wanted the status quo to be not to make ripples, not to be the problem so that, that you could continue to build and grow your career. Yeah. And I think in retrospect, I also really respect what women are doing now and how honest and open they're being about it because they're teaching me as well to continue to do that more. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, and not to say that a producer that finds out someone's pregnant is not going to not, is going to not hire them because they would be worried. Yes. Um, so in certain instances, you probably don't want to say anything be, you know, if you don't know the person. So it's, it's still, you know, it's still a problem. Of yes. course. Um, but you know, at least the conversation is happening. Whereas when I was working, <laughs> you know, it definitely was not. It, so yeah. how is it? Okay. So I know that your husband is also an ASC member. Um, and I imagine because Shane, <laughs> Shane and I are like, okay, work stays at work or we desperately try to do that when we come home, you know, it's not all filmmakers Academy. Like we, we try to have Shane and Lydia time. So <laughs> I can only imagine with two cinematographers, in a household, how do you how do you deal with that? You and know, your kids are older now too, right? Yeah, the kids are gone. Yeah. Right, so yeah. you're <laughs> empty nester. We are empty. Well, you know, you're never an empty. No, nester. no, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to children, but they're they're always we are children. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so uh, in terms of not bringing work home, I mean, I think again because we love what we do, we obviously do talk about it a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really fun to bounce ideas off of each other. And especially now with, you know, with digital and, you know, there's so many lenses oh, to look at and so every quick. day there's yeah. something new and you can't look at it all. Yeah. No. So I actually, there's, I've got two of us, which is fantastic. So yeah. we get to help each other out with testing things and, um, you know, actually using things in the field and having discussions about it. And, um, so that's, that's been great. Um, it's been, you know, it's definitely somehow we've found a balance, um, yes. to have a good home and work life. And now that our kids are gone, it's actually harder because we can take longer projects at the same time. And that causes us to be apart from each other more. Yes. So we used to see each other a lot more when our kids were little than we do now. So, 
you know, it's that's that's a tricky part for sure. You know, not seeing each other for three or four months. We never did that before. When we had kids, we had a three week rule and one of us would fly no matter how far it was to see the other person, bring the kids um, or one of us would work. One of us wouldn't work because we just felt like that was that was just a little too long to not have a connection. Yes. So, so it'll be interesting to see how, how we deal with that um, moving forward. <laughs> because if you're both on a project, it's not so easy to... It's not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we have not been on a project at the same time for that long, mm-hmm. um, ever. So it's starting to happen now, though, because, you know, all the work's leaving town. Yes. And um, there's just nothing, there's nothing in town. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just leaving town, but it's going... Like my husband's leaving next, next this month. This month? It's February. Almost February. Uh, to go back to Africa, to Cape Town, to do a feature. And he'll be there for five months. And that is not an easy place to get to. You know, no. it's a really long flight. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's really expensive. And so when I was in, in Cape Town on One Piece, he didn't work. He basically came and stayed with me. Just because he's like, I'm never going to see you otherwise. If you're gone for eight months. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what we started doing. Uh, because it... In the beginning, when I was, you know, coming up in my career, I we were apart a lot. And because I was home with the, the kids, kids of and we wanted a home base for our kids, kids. schools, you know, and and soccer, not set life. and you yeah, know, that that uh, friends that they hope to keep to their, you know, dying days. You know, it's <laughs> yes. like when yes. just like kind of we grew up in a very small community, farming community, mm-hmm. and. We still get on Zoom calls with all our friends and talk about from you know, high from, school yeah. and from grade school, yeah. you know. So we wanted uh, a little glimpse of that for them. You've known so, each other since grade school, preschool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we'll have to talk about that. That's yeah. We started. That's we, crazy. I was four, and or no, I I was four. You were three. Three. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. an amazing story. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> insane. But anyway, this is about you. <laughs> Um, so it's very difficult. I think every stage is wonderful and every stage has its challenges. And I think that it, especially when children are younger, when you choose to have children, both of you were working, we knew going in that there would be a sacrifice, Mm -hmm. right? And so Shane and I honestly made the decision of like, who can earn more or whose turn is it? to kind of keep going on career and who is the person that is going to be around more and be the hands-on parent because we we it was important to both of us to be hands-on with our kids yeah so I he could earn more than I could and I found a way to grow my career um with coaching to be able to set my own hours, to be an entrepreneur and to do it that way. And if you ask my kids, it's so fascinating. They think a lot of times that I work equally hard or harder than Shane. And I was around for everything. Shane, I think it was really hard for him to be away from us so much. Mm -hmm. And because we were limited by school, you know, holidays and summers. And so it was chunks of time. Yeah. But when you were not on a project, he was really present. Right. Right. Because it, he, he wasn't constantly being pulled by work. Yeah. And that's a wonderful thing. Like, you know, you do some, some kids are okay with that. Some kids aren't. I have one that was 
could have cared less when we came and went. And my other one was a little more affected by yes. the sort of instability. Like he wanted yeah. dinner at six we o'clock. We had the same and, thing. Yeah, just yeah. one was just very different kids. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, and I also always make the joke that the person who's home does have the harder job. It's much easier to <laughs> go on the road and be in an apartment with no kids and nothing to take care of. And, and the person who's at home has all the work to do. Exactly. <laughs> so. And also it's a difficult balance about how much I want to talk about what I'm doing. Right. Because then it's like, yeah, I'm, I just had this amazing, amazing dinner. Right. dinner. No, no, no. This, Jimmy still thing. gets and mad at me. The... Even though he's not home with the kids when I call him and he's like, I don't want to hear about it anymore. Like, oh, just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I think it, when I was in London, Lydia was not loving uh, hearing about all my uh, dinners and, and all that stuff yeah and, and As everything is breaking <laughs> in the house yeah exactly yeah. we're like the washer just went the refrigerator just went yeah. where are you you know and i'm like oh well, no I, know, i'm out at a really nice restaurant yeah, enjoying two good. bottles of marola yeah but there, but, but there are a lot of you know young women ask me like how do you balance the work and the family yes. and i said it's not easy you have to be on top of things. You have to manage that part of your life just like you manage your career. And it takes a village of people. Yeah. You can't do it by yourself. You have to have caretakers or family. Um, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I'll just take my, I, I'll take my baby with me everywhere I go. And I'm like, well, if you're the director, yes, but not as a DP. That's not going to work. Most times you can't bring them to set. Um, you're not going to have a trailer everywhere you go. And you're, you know, your, your baby's going to be home and you're still going to have to hire somebody. So, yes. you know, of course you're going to bring them with you, especially if you're a single mother. Um, but it's not the bring them to work situation where I think a lot of people see their kids are on set or, you know, they're close by so they can see them at lunch. And you really have to be prepared that your, your baby's going to be with somebody most of the time um, when you're working. and Which is really hard. It, it's hard, but, you know, it's also... You know, I also love the breaks yes. as well. I have to be honest. I thought that was probably good for my wellness and my health to not be 100% with my kids all the time. Yes. And good for them, too, to get used to being taken care of by other people. And I think, you know, like my younger son wanted to go to preschool when he was one. Because he was just like, my brother's in school, my parents aren't around, I'm out of here. Like, I just want to go to school. Yeah. <laughs> it's more fun there than it is at home. Um, but, yeah, no, it's definitely, it's... Um, it's tricky. I think the point that you're making, and this is one thing that I want to say, is every situation is so different. Yeah. Every marriage is so different. What people's capacities are is so different. And I think that there's a, there's such a judgment that I really want to call out and, and to have people let go of that. Because I think Everybody judges situations and it's really critical that the couple, the, the people in relationship figure out what works for their family, the partners, the whatever the, the home situation is, whether or not to have kids. If you don't want kids, don't have them. If you love kids and you can figure out a way to make it work awesome. But I, I think that there's no right answer to this. And no. I think it's just about being determined and, and really the mindset of I know myself and here's what I need to function at my best as a cinematographer, as a mother, as a spouse in all the roles that 
that I'm doing, yeah, right? And and your partner as well, you know, needs to also be 100% on board because yes, you know, you do obviously it's it's two people most of the time, not all of the time. Lots of friends who've had babies on their own and they doing fantastic as well. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, again, it's just it's it's being prepared, I think, for it and yeah. Um okay, next question <laughs> for you. The ASC, what a huge honor that was. Did your husband get in first? Did you, like, how did the timing work? How was all of that? How was the process? Because I think that people are so interested in hearing. It's such a distinction. It's such a, a marker of time in your career. It's one of those memorable, ooh, I got into the ASC. It's a big deal. Yeah, I know. It's a huge honor. And um, you know, basically my husband, because I shot commercials for 15 years, I didn't really get back into narrative until 2015. I'd done a few independent movies, mm -hmm. little movies before that. But, um, so he, he really, you know, he had 20 years of narrative experience before he was asked to join. So he really did a lot more than I had in terms of when I got asked to join, cause it's only been about seven years. Um, so it was, I felt a little, I have to be honest, I felt a little guilty um, because he had wanted to be a member for so long. And I'd never thought about it because I wasn't shooting narrative. Yes. I, I never thought I would even be asked ever. Um, mm -hmm. So when I did get asked, it was, it was amazing. And the whole process was incredible. And, and now that I'm a member, it's so much fun and it's so great to be involved and, you know, to go to the events and be on committees. And um, it's part of what I love about what we do is giving back to the community and, yes. and the ASC is so good at that. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I mean, I don't know what else to say about the distinction, but other than, uh, yes, of course it was, it was incredible. so exciting and incredible. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's a life altering, you know, thing to have happen to you. You really feel like you're a member of this group of people who are so distinguished and so good at what they do. Um, that you don't really, I don't know where to go from there. What do you get, a sir? A dame? <laughs> I think, yeah. So, Nicole, the process for people that might not be aware. So mm. how many nominations um, were you, you know, again, were you taken aback in terms of timing? Did you feel like, wow, am I ready? I don't know. Do, do yeah, you? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it was it was perfect timing when I was asked. I was actually shooting a show called Bad Sisters, and I was in London. And um, the first person who uh, sponsored me called me, and it was it was it was perfect because I knew I was going to do one piece. I knew I would have had Bad Sisters, so I would have had enough of a body of work at that point. Three years, two years earlier, I wouldn't have felt like it was appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, but when I got asked, and then it took two years from there for me to actually get my meeting. Um, it was COVID. It was complicated. Mm -hmm. Things were, um, it took a long time. I think it took about from the first time I was asked, it took another seven months, um, until I was actually really doing, going through the process. Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't have to have, I think, um, what is it? Three, um, nominations. nominations. Yeah. I was really like, I got six, which was really amazing. I was totally blown away. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then you basically go and you, you have a conversation, show them your work, talk about yourself, talk about what you would do for the ASC. 
Um, and then they go and they vote and then you wait again. <laughs> so then, are yeah. you waiting while they're voting or, or they no. say, come, you know, we'll get back to you. Oh, well, they don't tell you the day that you do your interview. Okay. Yeah, but they vote that day. Okay. Yes. Having never been through the prior, I'm the yes. only person here yeah. who hasn't been through the yeah. process. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, it's so... good because we're teaching <laughs> no, our I members mean, yeah. what the process yeah, is. Yeah, no, it's amazing. But it is something you, you obviously you don't ask to join the ASC. You have to be asked. Yes. yes. So, um, okay. and some people don't know that. Um, some people have done that and they've gotten in big trouble. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's something that, you know, you just, you wait. And when it happens, it's just so exciting. I mean, that was, you know, my my stomach went into my throat. I just was like overjoyed. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is just too exciting. So then the whole body votes on, do we accept Nicole or not? Or is it the membership committee? The membership membership committee committee. does. Yeah. So there, it depends on who comes to your meeting. Okay. There can be five people at a meeting. There could be 30 people at a meeting. Um, and then that committee votes and then it goes to the whole, um, community in case someone has a problem with somebody, or they've had an issue with someone in the past. Yeah, they open it up and they tell you these are who we're considering. Yeah. I get an email almost every month of who the members are thinking about. Yeah. And that's our open invitation to say, oh, I'm not so sure about that person. Or, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, you know, you you obviously support. Or I want to go to their meeting. Exactly. Support them. Okay. Okay. I actually, we we never talk about this. Yeah. (laughs) It's fascinating It's a very stressful, that is a stressful meeting. Yes. Yeah, so that's you more have to than going to work. You have yeah. to interview. You well, I was lucky because I got to do it on Zoom. Most people have to go in person. But yeah, I went of, in person. Yeah, sat in you know the square table where everyone's looking at you, yeah. and and you and show these... your reel, and yeah. they're all you know there, <laughs> and then you talk about uh, you know who you are as an artist and. And what's what ex- meaningful to you? Or- yeah, and what yeah. excites you? What do you What are you going to bring to the ASC? You know, yeah. um, and then you have to talk about your work as your work is being shown. So the Zoom portion was amazing because you got to actually do a voiceover of while and, it's playing yeah. while it's playing whereas when he did it he actually had to talk while it was playing in person Oof. so i got away with a less i i, I would have been fine in person because i'm not nervous about speaking in public but a lot of dps who don't like it it's <laughs> very very nerve-wracking to go yeah. have yes. that meeting yeah so yeah. Um, i can only imagine i think i was in graduate school when this all went down because oh, wow. i'm like i have absolutely no memory of this so this Really, I was yeah. in Virginia when Shane was dealing with all of this. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So wow. So then, uh, then they let you know. Then they let you know that you've been accepted, and then, yeah, and then you're a member. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. then well, they send you like a email that says, "What committees would you like to be into?" And you know, you check your box of those uh-huh. things, and yeah. you know, it's like I. I love the mentee program Me and too. I've been a huge supporter of that uh, ever since it started. And that's where I feel that that direct connection of, of uh, is so, so important. And, you know, it's like the, the ASC has what I feel like a, where we're headed now. It's, I love the new um, young uh, insurgents that that we're doing and the doors are definitely 
getting open mm -hmm. more. And I love that we have a commercial side now and a music video side. And documentary. And, the yeah. 15 years or 12 years that you did as a cinematographer as commercials, that should not be looked at any differently just because mm -hmm. you didn't shoot narrative. So I do like that we're opening up the, the mm -hmm. doors. I mean, I cut my teeth on music videos. I shot, I think, over 150 uh, gaffed another 200, you know, so I, I had a, that whole area is now being opened up right? as, right. as well. Yeah. And we had like I, no awards. I mean, there was the MTV awards. And yeah. The and MTV I would have loved that because right? I, some of the music videos I did back in the day, I was like, geez, I would have loved it. They were art pieces. Yes. Yeah. 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 It was That's it was when amazing. we had money. It's yeah. like when I was doing <laughs> November rain, it was like $2.7 million right. <laughs> to do a music video. You're crazy. like, now it's like 30,000. If you're lucky. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or unless you're Taylor Swift. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I'd love to um, understand, Nicole, what inspires you as an artist? What how do you stay inspired creatively? How do you, um, you you're so positive, right? And, and you exude positivity. And I love that so much because I think it's a rare quality. And so what do you do to stay positive, to stay inspired, to really stay frosty in your craft? <laughs> well, I think, you know, again, I think we have this wonderful community of other cinematographers. Um, even before I was in the ASC, I've always had so many friends who are DPs and, you know, just talking about what we do and, you know, bouncing ideas off of each other and seeing what they've created and seeing what, you know, other people have created. And you know, every time I see a film, I'll reach out to the DP from that film. And it's amazing. Like, you know, I was on the phone with Philippe Russolo the other day, and then you reach out to Greg Frazier when I did my last film, because I was using the same lenses as him. And they spend an hour on the phone with you or Ed Lockman was just on the phone with me the other day because I needed some crew in Chile. And it is amazing to me, like the, just the support that we get from everybody. And so I feel like that also encourages me to want to watch everything that everybody does, which yes. then inspires me creatively. And I see every movie that comes out. I'm absolutely crazy. Um, I don't get through all the television shows. I try, <laughs> um, but at least I try to, you know, if someone I know has worked on something, I at least try to watch the first two episodes. And I just think, you know, on a creative level, um, compared to when we started out, there's so many platforms now. Yeah. There's so much to see. Yes. There's so many ways for people to work and to do things. And, um, I think that's also something that's exciting. And, and, you know, when streaming started, I mean, the first show I worked on was a show called Patriot. It was when Amazon started streaming and you couldn't even watch it on television. You had to stream it through your Xbox. And that oh, wow. was only in, that was 2015. So it's, you know, the leaps and bounds in less than 10 mm -hmm. years that has happened with streaming to me is very exciting. And, you know, I think there's um, too much, to be honest, there's too much content. <laughs> I wish there wasn't so much because I feel like people miss things that they really should see and I'd love for them to see because they can't get through everything. Um, I think that will s slow down now. I think yeah. post-strike, I'm feeling like... I think like, it needs to. And it does need to because there, there's a, there was a lot of not great programming and yes. a lot of things that you know, and, and no offense to anybody who does what we do, but a lot of people that were moving up very quickly um, that didn't really know what they were doing. And I think not on a creative level, 
but I think the political part of going on to a big show really hit them hard. And so a lot of DPs, um, they're, they're not hireable because of that, because they were thrown into these mm. big shows. And I've heard from producers who've asked me for recommendations for people. And like, I don't know that because I just know them as a person that, oh yeah, that person, they're not on the list to be hired anymore because they were not, you know, able to handle themselves on a big show. Yes. Um, so that, that was a bad part of it, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and it affects us too, because when we go on jobs, sometimes you can't get crew. Because there's too many shows. Like I remember I was in, when I was in Toronto, I think there was like over a hundred shows. Or so. I mean, it was just no, insane. Like I just like. Shane's dealt with the exact yeah. same. Oh, and when it's I was really in Atlanta, hard. I was 19th. Uh, the gaffer was like 19th in line. Right. 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 <laughs> so it's like. And he probably was not a gaffer until like the month before. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's great. Again, it's fantastic for people to have the opportunities, but not on a hundred million dollar show. They can't you know? handle that. It's the, too much. The, the politics, the stress. Mostly mm -hmm. the politics. Yeah. Yeah. They can't yeah. handle it. Yeah. And I see them fail and I see them make huge missteps. And that only is going to kind of hinder their uh progression as well right so it's like mm -hmm. you know it's knowing when to move up is uh, a very important time yes you know yes and you have to do it well uh the transitioning i always call when i went from a gaffer to a dp which you know back when i transitioned there was only three or four gaffers that had ever done that jump yeah and I remember it, it was you, Claudio, yes. Dave. Well, he did his later. Yeah. Um, it was and me and Claudio, really. And Claudio, it? yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. And then, you know, Measuresmith is the current one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. No, it's, there hasn't been a lot still yeah. to this day. Mm -hmm. And the, the pulling from all the DPs that had always hired me as a gaffer and they wanted me to be there, I, I the only way I could try to stop that so I could move forward right. is I, I went to my DPs and I said, well, this is how it's going to work. You're going to pay me your rate. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> I go, yeah. So, you know, I need exactly what you're getting paid on this job. And they're like, okay, I got it. Right. So I did like three jobs that way. And then finally, Joseph Yako came to me and he goes, Shane, I can't afford this shit anymore <laughs> because I'm given half my rate and then the production is is picking up the other half. Right. Go be a DP. Right. And I'm like, mission Yay. accomplished. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> How do you know when you're ready? How do you or or if people mm. say to you, Okay, you know, I've been camera operating. I'm sure mentees ask you this question or, Gosh, or yeah, I don't know how to answer that question, to be honest. I think because you had a very weird trajectory. I did have a yeah. strange, very yeah, very strange. Yeah. Uh, so I'm probably not the best person to answer that question, but I think I would say it's probably just, it's a gut instinct, you know, that yeah. you're, you're on sets and you see how things have to be handled and you know, you could step into that position. That's exactly, right? that was what it was for me. Right. Yeah. Like, I know it, I can do that now. It right? was like when I saw, when I started seeing the choices that the director of photography was making right. and I felt 
either. You wanted to change it? <laughs> yes. I wanted to change it yeah. or I didn't like that necessarily that choice. Then you knew. Then I knew I was, it was time. Right, right. And, and, and again, too, I mean, I always say to, to people who are nervous about moving up, I'm like, you just have to hire amazing gaffers and an amazing key grip and an amazing AC and they will support you. Yes. Um, you're never going to know everything. Mm-hmm. even if you shoot for 20, 30, 40 years. So you have to surround yourself with people who will support you. And, you know, you'll find your your people. And then you can definitely feel comfortable stepping into something. So yeah. I love that so much because I think we've talked about never taking no for an answer, mm-hmm. which was your road. And I did the same thing. I never took no for an answer. And I yeah. still don't. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't do that. Or even like, you know, if someone says, you know, she doesn't have a Campbell soup can on her reel, which would happen to me all the time. I'd go shoot one and throw it on my reel. And I'd be like, oh, great. She's got a Campbell soup can on her reel. <laughs> you know, it's just like, uh-huh. Yes, I do. Yes, even though. Yeah, we always made the joke with toasters. Oh. Oh, you haven't shot a toaster commercial though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, no. I actually got asked for my furniture reel once, which was classic. Because I was like, you know, furniture doesn't move. And... uh <laughs> I'm not quite sure what I should do with that. So I went and shot some furniture in my house and I sent it in and I got the job. It was the funniest request ever, but. So I want to pivot to a whole other thing because I want to ask you this. Okay. There's a lot of different producers in how they produce. Mm -hmm. I call some the no masters and I call others the ones that are uh, half no, half yes. And then the others (laughs) that are just somehow they're able to say yes all the time. Now, have you gotten all three? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Less less of the no masters. I have not had many of those, luckily for me. That's a um, gift. But I haven't that done is it. a gift. Yeah. I mean that's that's luck. Um, but I have had them a hundred percent. But usually I find, especially on a bigger show, they send their PMs to deal with being the nose and then mm-hmm. they kind of wait for you to come and bang on their doors. Um, but I find, you know, I feel like I've been really lucky to work with some really great producers that were very collaborative. Because so. you produced in the past. So I would love to to hear your perspective mm-hmm. of how you used to produce and then how uh, when it is the no masters how do you handle that as a cinematographer? Yeah. Uh, and what is the compromise? Because we all know making a movie, a TV series, mm-hmm. what commercial music video, whatever, the compromise is everything, right? Yes. There's always the compromise. Yeah. So how do you balance the no's and the yeses and the compromise? Sorry, it's a lot of questions. No, 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 I get it. I get it. I mean, I, you know, again, when I was producing commercials, we had money. So I was really lucky. I don't think I ever went over budget. I sometimes couldn't even spend all the money. Um, I know. It was just a different time. That time period was ridiculous. The 80s and 90s of commercials was like the sweet spot. It was crazy. I mean, I would, you know, I could fly my my crew first class. Everybody stayed in the same hotels. Um, You know, you could bring everybody with you. you. It was just very different. So it was really like you just... It was so much easier to produce then because my mm-hmm. DP wouldn't have to find a new crew or my, you know, my director could bring their their stylist and their, you know, assistants and, you know, who knew how to make their pre-pro books. And, you know, so it was like I 
I have to be honest, it was much easier to produce then than it is now. Because now you really have to be. No, it's being counted. You have to be a to magician, yeah. <laughs> you know, to be able to produce now. Yeah. It's really hard. And, and, you know, a lot of like, I'm doing a job with um, a producer next week, a commercial, who was my production manager when I was a producer, which I oh. love. And we talk about that all the time. Like, you know, she's still producing, you know, 25 years later. And, you know, she does bigger jobs. So, but it's still, every job is a lot more figuring out. Um, mm -hmm. You don't always get to bring like your production team with you like no. you used to. Most of the time it's you and then you use the locals so you don't have a PM oh, with wow. you anymore. So it's really different. It's really changed a lot. So I think in terms of what I learned from producing, I, you know, I was able to be a yes producer. And so I was very loved <laughs> um, when I started working with producers who couldn't give me everything I needed. I knew it was only most of the time, I'd say, because they didn't have enough money. So I didn't take it personally. Um, I do think sometimes it's also just wanting to hold something so that, you know, they're not giving you everything you want. Um, but I kind of feel like my the way that I approach it is I say, this is this is everything I'd love and you have to tell me what I can have. So I don't go in there like I have to have, this is what I have to have. I just say this is everything that we would love to have to be able to do this job in the time that we have, in the days that we have with, you know, all of the work that we'd like to do creatively. I mm -hmm. don't know what the money situation is. So you have to tell me what I can and can't have. Um, and that's usually how I sort of go about it. And then they'll come back to me and, and I feel like it opens up for them to be part of the conversation as opposed to you coming in there guns blazing. This is what I do. And I can't do this without this. Yeah. So I think that again, that's part of the politics that I've just learned is, you know, and the line producers always say, you know, we want to, we want this to be a, you know, a partnership between all of us. And by, you know, the end of the show, nobody's talking to each other, but, <laughs> <laughs> and then we get, and then we become friends again when we come home. But, um, you know, just, it's just, just so hard and they're under so much pressure and, yeah. you know, it's just, and I understand that. And I always tell them that. And I'm just like, even if you feel like it's me and the director against you, just, you have to say something because if you don't say something, then we're not going to know. Because a lot of times the directors do kind of pull me into this, you know, I don't want you to deal with the producers. I want to protect you. Tell me what you need. And I'm like, well, I want to protect you. I don't want yeah. you to be dealing with what I need. So there's this balancing act of, you know, keeping them in the loop and then also um, dealing with it on your own. And I feel yeah. like hard. every producer walks is it's tightrope walking, right? Yeah. And, and, it's literally yeah. your, you know, you've got your bar. And, and, you know, there's so many costs, so much is weighing on you and pulling on you and everybody wants a great creative vision, but the creativity at some point has to be cut off. Yeah. Yeah. And always, no matter how big the job is. No matter yeah. how no, big the job there's is. There's never endless. I and, mean, unless you're on Mission Impossible, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I found that, um. I do the exact same thing. I try to shelter the director as much as possible from all these things. I try, you know, once he or we have our conversation to what the look and feel and what we want, and we go down that road, and then the, well, yeah, well, we can't afford this, can't afford that. And I'm like trying to problem solve and get around so I can, whatever the compromise is, we're still holding on to the vision, even right. though we've compromised. But I have had 
points in my career, and it's something that I, I think that is very important for director photographies to do, is there are times where you do need to go to the director and you need to say, okay, this is what the producer has just told me. We cannot have a pre-rig team because we don't have the money for it. So I've come up with an idea and I need to pitch it to you. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, what is it? I said, if they have 13 and a half hour days, if we can do some eight hour days and we can do some 10 hour days and we can do some 12 hour days, then that that we bank can be used for our pre-rig teams. And now we can come in and you're going to be able to rehearse with the actors of the set that's very, very close to being finessed. And we will get everything that we talked about in right. the beginning. Bartering. Yes. <laughs> and he goes, absolutely. Right. Great idea. And, and with that, we started to blow the producer away like we did two six-hour days. And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> and then eight, I think we might have done eight to ten eight-hour days. And this is back before COVID. So this is like when 13 and a half-hour days were budgeted, right? That was the standard mm -hmm. thing. And all of a sudden, the money started to flow. We were able to have everything that we wanted. And that was just knowing that this... I knew how important it was to the director to have his rehearsal times and the time to block and everything right. on set. And if it, if it was then going to be three hours after we did that to then get the act back because we didn't have the time to yeah. actually pre-rig and all that bad. stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so I that was a, a very defining moment where, because I had always held so much to the line of I need to fall on the sword for the director. And mm -hmm. that's gotten me into a lot of trouble, actually, yeah. because you fight battles that you shouldn't be fighting. They need to fight those battles. battles. Yeah, but it is. It's hard. It's hard to, to know the balance and, you know, at what point, you know, it's going to also upset the producer. Right. Right. Because then if the director gets involved, then you're, you know, you're going to the king and then it stirs the pot. Yeah. Because... He's like, why did you call me out? And why did you bring the director <laughs> right. in? So you have to like, you have to tell them you're going to do it. Or, you know, it's like, like even on, on one piece, when we wanted to use these lenses, there's no way I could have gotten them approved without my director who would have be on these conference calls and call them their magic lenses. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's what he called them. I'm like, magic lenses. Oh my God. We don't even get them until we start shooting. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then on my last feature as well, they wanted us to um, use less expensive lenses and my director had to be the one to go to bat for these very expensive lenses anamorphic mm -hmm. lenses that we wanted to use because they weren't bid for it um and then then we went back of course to the to airy and got a great deal on top of that but it was still more than they wanted to spend and you know so you have to get them involved in those creative decisions sometimes you just don't have a choice because there's no way they would have said yes if it was just me by myself. I had so. that difficult one on my last series where we used the Caldwell Chameleons, which are very, there's not many, many sets of them. They're quirky as shit. They, the inner workings are like held together with popsicle sticks <laughs> and gaffer's tape, but they look amazing. And that was a, we went back several times to not nef necessarily Netflix, but all, you know, 
21 uh, Laps and and Jackal Group, the other producing things, and they had to fight for us Mm -hmm. for that. Right. Um, And, you know, we eventually got them all approved and were able to do it. But, yeah, it's it's the politics of knowing when that time Mm -hmm. is right and um, and who and who you're going to get involved and yeah it's it's tricky because it really can um it can ruin your relationship with production very quickly yes Mm -hmm. so and then you're thought of as the troublemaker or just not the collaborator that they want so yeah it's and it sounds like every single project is different but i think the understanding the the hierarchy of communication and it's also the who to go to for what Mm -hmm. is probably one of the most difficult things in the political arena of filmmaking to learn. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I kind of tried to diffuse the bomb a lot of times <laughs> uh, with organization. Right. Right. Yeah. So if they see that you're a responsible filmmaker, we're like, I don't need the Scorpio 45 for <laughs> all days. I just need it for day one day nine, day 20, you know, when they start Mm -hmm. to see calendars come out where you're like really taking the time to think it through and minimize Mm -hmm. the time and, and work with the AD say, Hey, if we can group these days together, we can get the crane in you know, two days and not spread out over this time Mm -hmm. where it's got to stay there. And, you know, when they start to see that love of trying to, yeah, help them in their job that's when i found that the the doors start to be knocked down and yeah. opened and that's the the bad part of the prep at the end when you have to start doing that <laughs> yes <laughs> you're just like when the production manager is like hey we only have 13 crane days and you've got 30 you know and then they get that's their most exciting thing in the world is when you come in and you can like actually make their crane days work they're always like oh i'm so excited thank and you, you. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly it's like i've given them a gift you know it's just like <laughs> i love that <laughs> but yeah. well we could talk for days to you, Nicole, <laughs> and I know that that we have to manage time. So just a few final questions. The first is, what do you want women to know? Like as as a female artist, filmmaker, what what do you think is important for women in your role as you're a role model? Yeah, what, what advice can you give what advice, that young aspiring, you know, filmmaker that wants to come yes. up? How can they, what's the, the uh, how can you put uh, baby bumpers on them? <laughs> and what kind of speed bumps uh, or, or potholes can you steer them around? I mean, you know, again, since I never thought anything was different than myself or someone who was a male wanting to do what I do. Um, I don't really have great advice in that respect, but I would say if I was starting out now, because there are so many women in mm-hmm. our field now, and there weren't when I started out, is just to reach out to people. Um, and Create that I, community. Yeah, like I have women reaching out to me from all over the world on Instagram, saying I'm inspired by you. Would you be willing to talk to me? And when you say yes, it blows them away. They're like, oh, I can't believe you're going to take the time to talk to me. And I feel like a lot of young people are afraid to reach out to people like that they love their work. And that's something we love to hear that people love our work. We don't want to not hear that people 
people love our work. So I would say that to me, and I've given that advice to a lot of my mentees, is just go through the films that you love, go through the shows that you love, and just, you know, message those people or send them an email if you can get their email address if you're lucky enough. Um, And I, I will bet four out of five times that they will respond to you because they'll be excited to hear how much you love their work because that's why we do what we do. Yes. We want people to love our work. Yes. So that would be my suggestion. And <clears throat> again, because there are so many more women, I think that that is something also that we also want to give back to the to the community yes. as well, um, who gave to us when we were coming up um, the ranks. So you know, it was it was it was hard for me to get my foot in the door in television. I will be completely honest, and um, I was really lucky. Um, again, I was just it was a luck of a draw that. Um, my husband was shooting a show and he got asked to direct it and the showrunner was like who would you have come <laughs> shoot and he's like there's only one person that actually would would respect my vision that I know and if they didn't I could also yell at them <laughs> <laughs> and um, and she's also a fantastic DP and the showrunner saw my work and, and hired me and I don't think if I'd had that opportunity to do that one television show that I would have been able to get the the next show and and then my next show I actually reached out to Colin Watkinson and I had done a little tiny feature and he was prepping this show I'd never even met him before if the producers hear this they're gonna they're gonna roll over but um I sent him an email and I just was like I am such a huge fan of Handmaid's Tale yeah I love what you did with the show with the look of it I feel like we have a similar aesthetic look at my work um would you be willing to put me up as your alternating DP on this Apple show. It was, it was one of the first Apple shows. It was just starting. I knew nothing about it. I just was so excited to possibly get a chance. Yeah. And he presented me to the producers and it was a show starring the, a female lead. And they felt like this would be really great if we could have um, a woman be the alternating DP. And they'd met with four other women and they didn't want to use any of them. Um, so I had... My first meeting, that was actually one of the most nerve-wracking meetings I've ever been to um, because I knew I was going to have to tell a little lie because they said Colin said that I was one of his favorite people and I'd never even met him before. So, um, (laughs) and I think he even said we'd work together. I don't know. I just kind of tried to not answer questions. Um, But I had this fantastic meeting and um, then I met with the showrunner and then I met with um, the producers and they hired me. And it was huge and big sets I had never worked Mm -hmm. on anything like that before you know in terms of having everything on a board and big huge lighting and it was a big show and I just knew that I was confident enough that I could do it um and I just went in there and I just said to them I said I'm going to be the most excited person on your on your crew Mm -hmm. because I haven't done this before so I'm going to come to work to every day and be very excited and and they said that's why they hired me you know, so it wasn't only because I had a, because I didn't have a resume um, in television. So what I love about that story very specifically, and I want to highlight it, is that you found something you loved in terms of what you saw. You reached out, you took a risk, and you actually created an opportunity for yourself. And I think that so many times 
people maybe hang back or they stand back or they wait for something to open up and then they get frustrated because that thing isn't opening. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, my entire career is built on creating opportunities for myself. Something that didn't exist that I built or I made happen or I just saw um, an opening for. Yeah. And and so this is something that I really want to highlight and, and kudos and bravo to you because <laughs> that takes a lot to do that. And it can feel very discouraging at different times, especially when it doesn't work out or, or doors get slammed or if he had said no in that right. particular situation. Yeah. But that's where the never giving up comes in. And so... I want to really spotlight these little things that you've done in your career because it's so critical to the forward momentum that you've seen. Yeah. And it doesn't stop. I mean, you know, it's, you know, one of the things too is people are always like, oh, I'm not going to get work until I get an agent. And I'm like, our agents work with us. They don't get us the work. Yeah. We have to get the work. We have to sell ourselves. They're fantastic and they're there to support us. And sometimes, yes, they bring you a project. Um, but you still have to go and get that job. They don't yeah. just go, here's a job. And then you just go click and go do the job. Yes. So I think that, you know, that's one of the mistakes. I think that a lot of younger DPs who have said to me that they're just waiting to get an agent. And then when they get an agent, they're going to start working. And I'm like, that's, you're never, ever going to have to stop pounding the pavement. You are going to be doing that until the day you die. Because if you want to work with somebody that doesn't know you, you're the one that has to reach out to them. And, yes. and get them to get you in the room. So it's, yeah. it's such an important point. And then where do you see filmmaking going? I, I don't know. What do you feel the future landscape is looking like? So much is changing right now. And I think that I've heard so many things. Oh my God, the industry's contracting. Things are, you know, the scarcity mentality, which I can't bear personally. <laughs> Um, but I'd love to hear about where you feel, uh, you know, things are going. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's like been a little bit of a cleansing. I feel, um, the strike was awful, but you know, if there's something good that came out of it, I feel like maybe people took a moment of pause to think about what they really want to do, um, on the studio side. Um, I feel like independent film has had this renaissance and it's doing yes. so well which is so exciting to see these you know smaller films smaller tv shows things that people take risks um you know i mean look at what's been nominated you know it's yes. not these big blockbusters um you know even though a film like oppenheimer had a huge budget it still is an unusual type of film to have done so well yeah um and then you have these smaller films that are like you know these real art films you know they have amazing casts and you know but it's still it has an independent soul and then um a lot of people are just making smaller movies um which i think is really exciting so i think you know the the chance to create something that is not necessarily something that we've seen already or that's part of a you know a franchise mm -hmm. um has started again we're not seeing you know Marvel movie after Marvel movie. Um, we're definitely seeing some more art out there, which I think is really exciting. And I think it's exciting for the younger generation as well, because yes. they're never going to get hired to do a Marvel movie. 
Correct. And so you have to have these opportunities to do these smaller projects. And it seems like people are doing a lot of shorts as well, mm -hmm. which seem, is coming back. So I, I think, and like you said too, the fact that the ASC is opening up to music videos and documentaries and all these different um, platforms in filmmaking, it's not just about narrative features. Yes. Which is what I always thought. That's that's the only way you're going to get into the ASC. Yes. If you shoot big narrative features. Um, but I got in based on my television work, so... Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's exciting. I do too. And I love uh, seeing possibility and kind of selectively sorting for opportunity with the brain versus focusing on all the negative things that are happening. So thank you <laughs> for sharing that and giving people some hope and inspiration. And it's been such an extraordinary podcast episode with you, Nicole yeah, Hirsch Whitaker. Thank you so much for coming and doing this. Yeah, it was yeah fun. <laughs> we really have enjoyed having you. And to if you want to find Nicole, find you on uh, Instagram, anywhere else in terms of social. Or... That's the only social I do. Because I, I barely have enough time to do that. <laughs> but yes, I'm on Instagram. Okay. Yes. Great. And that concludes this episode of the Inner Circle Podcast. If you like this podcast, please make sure to share it with friends and like it. You can follow us on Spotify and other podcasting channels, also on Facebook. And don't forget that even though we have amazing guests, Filmmakers Academy members can submit their questions. We love answering your questions. And there is an area in our community section to directly submit those questions. So that's it for this episode. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.